Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's Wednesday, March 8th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Turkey has been beset by earthquakes, inflation, coups, war, and tying it all together. Right in the middle is Recep Erdogan. The Turkish president faces his toughest re-election fight yet this May. And the opposition parties have united on a candidate to oppose the Turkish strongman. He is Kemal Kirlichdaralu. Who is Kemal Kirlichdaralu? British broadcaster Monocle 24 has this description. Kilic Tarolu is a former economist and civil servant, so proverbially mild-mannered that he is referred to by Turkish media as Gandhi Kemal, a likening of his softly spoken approach to that of the Mahatma, a figure to whom Erdogan has been extremely infrequently compared. Mild-mannered, maybe putting it mildly, Bloomberg, under the grabber of a headline, Quiet Politician Steps Up to Challenge Erdogan in Turkish Election, has this description. A soft-spoken bureaucrat and economist by training. Ooh, not just mild-mannered, but soft-spoken. I'm listening. Anything else? Well, The Economist called him bookish. Barron's calls him Bookish. And to quote a Guardian headline, Turkish opposition settles on bookish presidential candidate after public row. Subhead, some say 74-year-old economist Kamal Kirlij Daralu lacks charisma to unseat Erdogan after two decades. You, you the Guardian, you are literally saying that. Some, you are among the some. Also among the sum, in a big way, France 24's Jasper Mortimer. His party has always come second to Erdogan's parties in elections. And for this reason, he is seen as something of a loser. Might it be because he always loses? I don't know. Maybe Turkey is just sick of the strong man. They want, if not the weak man, the smart man, a sensitive man. I don't know, the Turkish people, are they like known to favor the strong? I don't know, are they somehow drawn to robust feats of virility? It's not like the Turks are known for being mad. Take their national hot drink. Believe it's a weak tea or tepid coffee, right? Or the popular slang where you call someone a calm Turk or the sane Turk. I I am, however, hesitant to traffic in stereotypes. Well, in addition to being bookish, Kirlij Derulo is also Kurdish, which may get him immediately labeled as a terrorist by Erdogan, even if Kirlij Derulo sticks to his bookish knitting. Whenever Erdogan tries to label Kirlij Derulo, the population of Turkey is increasingly labeling Erdogan a failure. The earthquake was a natural disaster, 
but lacks building codes contributed to a death toll now nearing 50,000. And I mention inflation. Well, the U.S. is pretty bad inflation, 6.4%. U.K. said to be crippling inflation of 8.8%. Turkey's inflation at the end of last year, 85%. And that really is Erdogan's fault. He has an insane monetary policy that only he subscribes to, but he forces it through and the people suffer. So maybe Kirilich Derulo is not the strongest of men, but Turkey could use someone, if not bookish, who has actually read a book, be it a book on basic monetary policy, building codes, or simply the lessons of 20 years of Erdogan rule. It is time to turn the page. On the show today, a full, robust, and in-depth interview subsuming the spiel, but delivering fabulous information, It is with George Beebe, director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute. He was once director of the CIA's Russia Analysis Unit, a staff advisor on Russia matters to VP Dick Cheney. Beebe is certainly, uh, I'm not going to say dovish, but wary of American involvement, much more than I am. But you will hear us exchange viewpoints on the progress of the war, including the latest battle and the introduction of different weapon systems into the conflict. And after a break, instead of the spiel, we will continue to focus specifically on the nuclear threat, i.e. how to conceptualize the unthinkable George Beebe up next. George Beebe is a man with great expertise and, just as importantly to me, great titles. He is the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. You don't get better than that. He was the director of the CIA's Russia Analysis and Staff Advisor on Russia Matters to Vice President Cheney. A recent book of his is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral, into nuclear catastrophe. George Beebe, welcome to The Gist. Thank you very much. Right now, there is a battle going on for Bakhmut. And from what I understand, this has this city has no particular strategic significance, but is said to have very important symbolic significance. So why is Vladimir Zelensky taking a bet on what seems to be a long shot if it isn't vitally important, but only symbolically important? Well, I think this notion that it's not at all strategically important has been a little bit overplayed. I don't think that uh, uh, capturing Bakhmut is necessarily going to prove a decisive turning point in the war. In fact, I, I don't think this is a winnable war for either side. Um, I think we're, we're in a situation very much uh, akin to World War One, very bloody, slow-moving trench warfare that is going to exact an enormous toll on all the combatants, and in fact is doing that, but is not going to produce a World War II style outcome where there is a clear victor, somebody surrenders, countries are occupied, and the perpetrators get uh, hauled off to war crimes tribunals. This is going to be a war without a very satisfying end. Um, That said, uh, I think part of the reason why Zelensky is committing himself to the defense of Bakhmut is because um, it uh, creates an impression, should uh, Ukraine lose the war, that Ukraine is a lost cause and that its Western supporters should not continue to devote 
the kind of money and weaponry to supporting Ukraine that they have. Um, he doesn't want to create that impression. Uh, he wants to make sure that nobody thinks that Russia is actually going to win this war decisively. And I think that's why he's committing himself to the defense of Bakhmut to the degree that he is. Do you think that it could work? Well, no. I, I, I think the best that the Ukrainians can hope for is to slow uh, Russia's advance um, and drag out how long it's going to take Russia to actually control Bakhmut. Um, now, whether that's a wise thing for them to do or not is up to the Ukrainians to decide. If I were in Zelensky's shoes, I would fall back to a more defensible line to the West uh, and concede Bakhmut. Uh, but that's not the approach they're taking right now. And uh, I think only time will tell whether that proves to be a wise course. Right. And that's what has confused me because there have been decisive Ukrainian victories. And this seems to be, like I said, placing his bet on a long shot. Okay, he can't win, but maybe he's thinking we will draw it out and make Russian losses so steep that in the, uh, literally the analogy of we'll maybe lose the battle, but win the war, it will work out in Bakhmut. It just seems different from other areas where he has success. And I'm a little confused by it. Well, the Russians have the initiative right now. Um, it's, uh, uh, very difficult for the Ukrainians under these circumstances to go on the counteroffensive. Uh, they're using up men, uh, which is, I think, their, their most precious resource in all of this. Uh, you can replace weaponry, uh, very difficult to replace soldiers, and the Ukrainians have a limited number of them. The Russians appear to have a lot more. So the Russians are, I think, content to trade soldier for soldier with the Ukrainians, because in the end, I think the Russians believe they've got more of them to throw into the battle. I think it's in the Ukrainians' interest to fight this war in a different way, not to trade soldier for soldier and tank for tank, but to turn this into a war of maneuver that takes advantage of Western high technology, uh, the United States' ability to provide real-time 24-7 intelligence, um, and uh, try to, like the Ukrainians did uh, late last summer and early last fall, um, identify and exploit Russian weaknesses and achieve some breakthroughs. Uh, they can't fight that kind of war in Bakhmut. Uh, so I think it's in their interest to fall back, husband their resources for a more effective counteroffensive elsewhere later. Um, that's not what Zelensky's doing right now. So uh, I, I think it's a mistake, but uh, we won't know for sure until we see this play out. Okay, so you mentioned men and tanks slash technology. I want to talk about both. Russia has about 100 million more people in its population. It's about 140 million to 40 million Ukrainians. You know, you look at the male fighting age population. Russia has many more of them. But the Ukrainians are very willing to fight and very motivated. And the Russians are not. Who is in the more enviable position? Well, I think you've described the situation absolutely correctly. I think the Ukrainians have a morale advantage in all of this. Uh, they recognize that they are fighting for their very existence. 
Um, and it doesn't require a lot to motivate someone when, when uh, the alternative to fighting is dis- death and destruction. Um, that said, morale only gets you so far when you're facing a daunting imbalance in the numbers of troops that you're up against. Uh, the Russians, uh, I don't think, have anywhere near as good morale as the Ukrainians, but they can throw an awful lot of people into battle. And I think uh, Putin has only just begun to tap into the potential that Russia has uh, in fighting this war. Uh, he's conducted a limited mobilization. I think there's a lot more that could be done. Uh, new rounds of mobilization are certainly possible. There are some political risks that would attend future mobilizations. But one of the things that's happening is that the Russian people are becoming more and more convinced that they're fighting not just the Ukrainians, but the United States and all of NATO here. And that actually helps to rally support inside Russia for the conduct of this war. Uh, Putin is describing this as an existential struggle for Russia. Um, And I think increasingly the Russian people are starting to buy into that. And that doesn't bode well for Ukraine in this war. One analysis was that over time when the bodies came back, and this was part of uh, Putin's strategy, not even to recruit from the main city centers. He used used recruits and called up uh, mobilized troops from outlying areas. But when the bodies came back, it would be hard to ignore. And the whole idea of whatever a narrative that Putin placed on it would be destroyed by just the sheer fact of the bodies. But what you're saying is that hasn't been the actual uh, accurate description of what's been going on. The narrative is ascendant and it doesn't matter how many people have been killed, which might be upwards of 100,000. Putin is successfully framing this war in a way that seems to you to uh, argue for him to be able to get more recruits. Well, so far, that, that looks to be the way things are playing out inside Russia. Uh, we can't be confident that this is going to hold forever. Uh, things can change. And one of the things that's noteworthy about Russia's mobilization, uh, the troops that Russia has been using in this war, is that very few of them come from the Moscow and St. Petersburg ur- urban areas. Um, those are the parts of Russia that have been least supportive of Putin over the past several decades. Uh, Most of the uh, so-called liberal opposition inside Russia, and there are not a lot of them, but most of them are concentrated in those two urban areas. So I think Putin has been very careful not to try to draw upon those areas in uh, sending troops into the war. If he has to start to do that, Uh, then I think the picture could change and he could face uh, more resistance to the war than he has so far. So let's talk about tanks. Much hullabaloo, technical term, about the Leopard 2 tanks and the Abrams tanks. But so far, and we've all seen the reports about how the capacity to produce these tanks and deliver these tanks isn't what military experts would uh, recommend. But so far, they don't seem to have, I don't even know if they've made it to the battlefield. They don't seem to have made the difference. What's your assessment on the tanks? Should we ever have looked to them to be as big a game changer as, say, the high Mars missiles are? Or when they do come, will we see a big difference? Well, I rather doubt it. Uh, the tank is is not 
a weapon that's designed to fight uh, autonomously, individually. It is most effective when it is combined with other kinds of support, infantry, uh, air support. Um, and it takes time for a military to incorporate this kind of weaponry effectively into what it already has. It takes time to learn how to maintain it. It takes time to train on the specific uh, technical aspects of, of the tank. So um, I think there are very few people that believe that uh, the Leopard 2 or M1 uh, Abrams tanks uh, are going to be game changers on the battlefield. Um, I think that what uh, is more likely is that Russia is going to continue to grind down the Ukrainians uh, over time. Uh, this will continue to be a war of attrition, um, and uh, numbers are going to matter. You know, the Ukrainians have asked for upwards of 300 tanks if they're going to be in a position to conduct an effective counteroffensive. Uh, we've pledged to provide uh, about 100 about a third of what they're asking for, and they're not arriving uh, anytime soon. Uh, it's going to take months for the Ukrainians to get them uh, and to be able to use them effectively. So uh, these are not going to be game changers anytime soon. Uh, if the war is still going on, you know, a, a year from now, uh, maybe the picture might be different. But I think it's going to require an awful lot of uh, training and much greater numbers of tanks for them really to make a difference. So I don't want to mischaracterize your orientation or if I had uh, talked to you two days after the invasion, what you would have said, but I get the impression from uh, listening to interviews you've done and reading your book that you're very concerned about, well, nuclear war, as we all should be, but also you feel that it is very, very unlikely that Russia will lose, that Putin will perceive that he has lost the war and withdraw. So my question is, and maybe in this answer, you could tell me how accurate that assessment is, but how much has the actual execution of the war, what we've seen in the war, how much have you had to update your priors based on what seems to be uh, surprising Ukrainian military successes? Well, I, I think the Ukrainians have fought far more effectively than I had expected. Um, and the Russians, by contrast, have fought less effectively than I expected. On paper, this shouldn't be a close war. Uh, but in practice, it has proved, proved to be essentially a toss-up. And uh, it's already clear that the Russians can't achieve the objectives that they started out with in this war. They tried to seize Kiev. They tried to put in place essentially a pro-Russian puppet government. Um, and they, they tried to essentially to take advantage of the element of surprise uh, and speed and you know, seize the airport outside of Kiev, for example, and, and bring this war to a very quick close. And they made some enormous mistakes in doing so. I think they were quite overconfident about uh, the situation that they faced. Uh, they did not expect the United States to provide the kind of support to the Ukrainians that we did. I think that uh, proved to be an enormous factor in uh, Ukraine's success on the battlefield. Uh, and so Russia has had to recalibrate its ambitions here. I think they've given up on seizing Kiev. 
I think they're really focused now on consolidating control of the Donbass, uh, of those parts of Ukraine which they have officially annexed, but only parts of which they actually control militarily, uh, and on making sure that they can retain the land bridge uh, that they captured that links the Russian Federation proper uh, to Crimea. So those are far uh, more humble objectives right now than what I think they had uh, a year ago, February, when they, they launched this invasion. What does Ukraine get out of a peace other than a lack of war? Well, um, what they have potentially is an opportunity to rebuild Ukraine into a viable, unified nation state that is a significant player in Europe. Um, now, could they have achieved that without the war? Uh, I believe they could have. It would have required uh, some sort of negotiated compromise with Russia. So from the point of view of what they could wind up with versus what they could have had without the war, my, uh, my position here is they would have been far better off <laughs> had this war never started. Uh, that said, uh, I think um, they have avoided a worst case scenario. I, I think they have effectively prevented the Russians from retaking the vast bulk of Ukrainian territory and putting a pro-Russian government in place. And, and given what the Russians tried to do, and given the advantages that Russia has on paper over Ukraine, those are significant achievements. Uh, so um, I think Ukraine is in a situation where if it overreaches, if it essentially says, you know, no, that's not good enough, we have to decisively defeat the Russian military send Russian forces out of all Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, force the Russians to uh, acknowledge that defeat, I think they're going to wind up with a far worse situation. I think they're going to find themselves with a wrecked economy, uh, with enormous amounts of destruction uh, physically, uh, in Ukraine, and the loss of an enormous uh, number of Ukrainians, both to uh, you know, death and injury, and also to uh, emigration, uh, fleeing uh, outside Ukraine. And, and that's going to leave Ukraine in, a, in an awful uh, condition. So I think they need to be wise about what they're aiming for here, what really is achievable. Um, and how to leave Ukraine in the best possible post-war condition. What is your assessment? What is the stature of Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, the so-called Putin chef? He runs the Wagner Group. Seems to me to be an attack dog on a leash that Putin knows that he uh, picks fights with the generals. And I don't know if that annoys Putin or if Putin gets something out of that, but... How powerful is this guy and how much does Putin support his more wild proclamations and actions? Well, I think Putin is, is playing a dangerous game with uh, Prigozhin and with Wagner. Uh, on the one hand, um, what Wagner can do on the battlefield can be very helpful for Putin because 
um, he can use military forces that help him avoid uh, some more difficult political choices inside Russia. The degree to which he can use mercenaries um, who are essentially perceived as expendable, uh, people who are, have been recruited from prisons, people who are, are paid professional soldiers, um, that relieves Putin of the burden of having to use the regular military and ask you know, uh, Russian families to send their sons off to die. So um, it's, I think Wagner has proven useful from that point of view. But there's a danger. Uh, the degree to which uh, Prigozhin is perceived as successful on the battlefield and patriotic, someone willing to do more uh, for the sake of Mother Russia than the Russian military, than the Russian generals, and perhaps even than Putin. He becomes a political figure in his own right and a potential uh, successor uh, to Putin. So um, I think what Putin is trying to do is to exploit Prigozhin while trying to minimize the dangers that he will become a political player that Putin himself can't control. Um, and so you're seeing, I think, playing out inside Russia, some real tensions there. And, and I, I'm confident that Putin is aware of the risk that he is running. But uh, at this point, nobody can say with any great certainty how this is going to play out. And let's pause right there and come back in a minute to talk about the fact that this is a conflict with a nuclear state. We shall continue in a moment. We're back with George Beebe, director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute and author of The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. And on that point, the Russians have come to believe that the U.S. is totally discounting the risk of nuclear weapons and Putin wants to remind us of the presence of his nuclear silo. He tests ballistic systems. He talks about it. He does whatever he can to rattle his sabers and his silos. However, while nuclear weapons are there, present, certainly a possibility, how much do you take them into account? Do you let them paralyze you? On the other hand, you can't be blasé. So the question is, what can U.S. leaders do to communicate to Russia that we understand your capacity, we respect your nuclear capacity, but don't respect it, don't communicate it, and don't respect it to the point where U.S. and Ukrainian policy is so handcuffed as to forestall necessary options? I think you've put your finger on the balance that needs to be struck. Nuclear weapons should not paralyze us obviously. The possession of the world's largest nuclear arsenal, which is what Russia has, uh, is not some sort of uh, immunity card that allows you to do whatever you want in the world. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we need to be careful that we are not being reckless in um, running the risk that we could get into an escalatory spiral with the Russians that winds up in a situation where either we or the Russians 
have to choose between humiliation and using those nuclear weapons. That was the chief lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis, according to President Kennedy at the time. Um, you don't put yourself and you don't put your adversaries in a position where they have to make that choice because it's simply too dangerous and unpredictable. Th there's no rational reason that the Russians would use nuclear weapons uh, against the United States or, or against NATO. Um, and there's no rational reason why we would do that against the Russians unless we were attacked uh, with nuclear weapons. That said, I think we're in a situation really for the first time in history where um, the world's two uh, largest nuclear powers, together we, can, we uh, control more than 90% of the nuclear weapons in the world, are essentially in a war against each other. Um, we are, are doing this not with the direct use of American troops, but we've walked right up to that line. We're providing the Ukrainians with targeting information, real-time battlefield intelligence, all of the weapons <laughs> that, that they need to prosecute this war. Um, and the Russians believe that they are fighting against the United States and NATO in all but you know, direct combat. We're as close to that as you can come. That's a very dangerous situation to be in. It is unprecedented in the world. It is not comparable to what happened in Afghanistan when the United States was supporting the Mujahideen against the Soviet military. And it is not comparable to what happened in Vietnam when the Soviets were supporting the North Vietnamese against the South. This is well beyond that. I think it's far more dangerous. We're a lot closer to a direct confrontation. And if that happens, it's actually going to be difficult to control this from escalating. Do you think there's greater than 1% chance this becomes a nuclear conflict? Yes. So this was the title of a Ron Susskind book, The 1% Doctrine, which supposedly, and you were there, he was your boss, Dick Cheney articulated a position saying if there was a 1% chance that Pakistani scientists developed a nuclear bomb with Al-Qaeda, we have to treat that as a certainty. So <laughs> let us take that principle and apply it to this war. What does that mean? Well, if you were to apply that principle to this war, then we should be doing everything in our power to bring this war to an acceptable end. That doesn't mean surrendering and, and rolling over and allowing the Russians to resubjugate Ukraine. That's certainly not an acceptable outcome. But I think there are a lot of things that are achievable short of, of full surrender that could bring this war to an end. And I think it's very much in our interest to do so, not just because of the risks that this could escalate out of control, uh, but because uh, it there are a number of other interests that, that are at stake uh, in this war that are suffering as a result of the fighting. And I think it's, it's very much in our interest uh, to, to, to end this war as soon as possible. So not to give the impression that a nuclear state, because they are a nuclear state, can't lose a war, the United States and Vietnam, the United States and Russia and Afghanistan. But why is this war, why might this war be different from Afghanistan, where the Russians did withdraw? I'll throw out one idea. There was a change in Russian leadership and Gorbachev wasn't as wedded to the policies of uh, Andropov and Chernyenko as uh, as he was. And 
and also back then the USSR wasn't as much in the thrall of one man. So now Russia is much more uh, in the image of Putin than uh, the USSR ever was in the image of one person. But is there anything else, any other parallels of or lack of parallels between another war that a nuclear state voluntarily withdrew from? Well, those were in peripheral theaters. Those were not in the main theater. Uh, the United States could essentially lose uh, in uh, Vietnam, withdraw in what ultimately proved to be a humiliating fashion, uh, without putting its core survival at risk. And that was also true of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. This was a peripheral theater uh, for the Soviet Union. Uh, certainly, they didn't want to lose, uh, but uh, they could afford to withdraw and not put their survival at risk. That's not how the Russians are perceiving this war. Now, you can argue that uh, their belief that uh, Russia's survival is at stake is very much mistaken. But I, 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 uh, I believe, mistaken or not, that's where the Russians are. And it's not just Putin in perceiving the stakes in that way. I think uh, the vast uh, majority of the Russian national security establishment sees it in those terms. So uh, if you accept that they see Russia's existence at stake here, this is, this is not a nice to do, this is not a peripheral issue, uh, that Russia's existence is at stake, then they're very likely to run what we would regard as irrational uh, and, and very grave risks. Um, this is the situation, actually, that the United States misread in the run-up to uh, World War II with Japan. Secretary of State Dean Acheson described that. He said, everybody in the United States misread uh, Japan. We thought that you know, our embargo of Japan would elicit a very hostile response from, from Japan, but we didn't realize that they saw Japan's existence as at stake in all of this, that they didn't think attacking the United States was a nice-to-do thing, that they believed they had to or Japan would cease to exist as a significant power uh, surrounded by the Soviet Union, United States, and a potentially resurgent China. And I think that's the situation with Russia right now. They see their backs against the wall. Uh, Putin believes he's putting up a last-ditch defense against the world's largest, most powerful military alliance, which has been moving ever uh, closer to Russia's borders. And, um, you know, we don't see the situation that way, but I think he does. And, and that's part of the reason why the stakes are so high here and why I'm worried that the Russians are going to do very risky things because they believe that they have been backed into a corner. George Beebe, CIA veteran, staff advisor to Vice President Cheney, author of The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, is now the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And that's it for today's show that just is produced by Corey Wara. 
The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.